Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments. It can potentially change your trajectory or at least move you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Sometimes we do these in public places. You hear ambient noises in the background. But today, I am cozily ensconced in my sumptuous, very almost empty apartment living room here in Las Vegas, known to some as the hottest city in America. As I say, almost empty due to the apex of essentialism and minimalism, two of my key things. I like to invest in experiences, not so much things. A lot of my money goes to cigars. I'll just tell you like it is. And anyway, we have one of these conversations that I absolutely love. We've had so many folks on the Business Creators Radio Show who are ex-convicts who transformed that experience of their life and are now using it to make the world a better place by their their being part of it and their contributions to it. And this gentleman we have here today, I've been chatting with him for a few minutes in the green room, and I got to tell you, you're gonna you're gonna love to hear from him. His name is Sean Hayes. He was the co-founder and CEO of Allegiant Bank Corps, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. Among many other enterprises, he owned a company that he sold at age 44 for half a billion dollars. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I should tell you, he owes me $2 million. I spotted him alone. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Five years after selling his company, Sean committed a felony. Tisk tisk. He was incarcerated for his crime eight years later, and he now shares what he learned from his rise and fall. Hard-won lessons that can benefit individuals, groups, and businesses. Sean Hayes, come on in. I want these lessons from a multimillionaire turned convict on staying the course through life's ethical gray areas. So come on in. The weather's fine. Adam, thank you for having me. I really am excited to be with you tonight. Hell yeah. All right. So the normal first question we ask is I'll say something like, I read off your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here. And this is my show. Uh, But I got to tell you, I'm actually fascinated in a unique way by what you're going to share. So the usual question is, tell us a bit about what's brought you to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion as you serve your community market and audience in your own words. And I'm going to actually ask you that question a bit more specifically, but how do I put it? I mean, you're the author of a book called The Gray Choice. Sean, man, what the hell happened? Well, and, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things, and, it, and you should laugh because I, I, I have to laugh. Um, it's one of those things in life where, you know, I'm sure a very small percentage of the population just wakes up one day and does something criminal. 
Yeah. And that's that they're wired that way. But for myself and for many, many of your 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 listeners, you get there over time. And I right. use the energy, if I left LA going to New York and I was off by one degree, I end up, I mean going to DC, I, I'm off one degree, I end up in New York. And time, speed, and distance get you there. And what I cover in my book, it's my life. And right out of the box, I, um, I was an entrepreneur as a young man. But when I graduated college, and I went to work for a big company. I took a test in the first few weeks with a group of management trainees. And one of the, the first question was, have you stole anything from this company? And I debated that fact with the, the man from the company, the personality test company, saying, I haven't. But he said you would. And very soon thereafter, Adam, a, a guy, an older guy, not much older, said, hey, I've got a blind date. We'll go, we'll go out. We took the bank's tickets, went to a ball game, sat in the stadium club. And at the end of the night, I, he said, you owe me $90. I handed him $90 in cash. And he paid for it on a company credit card. So we'd use their tickets, taken two gals out, and he took my money. Right. And what, what the guy giving the test said, it starts with taking a pad of paper or a pen. And in today's world, I like to use the analogy, Cyber Monday. Virtually everybody shops on Cyber Monday. And uh-huh. if you're on the roll, you're stealing. But you don't just go from one to the other. And so over time, I went from black and white to a little bit of gray to a little bit more medium gray. And one day I ended up on the wrong side of the law. And what got me there, and this is what I really want your listeners to glean on is, number one, always have a goal after the goal. I yeah. had this to make a lot of money, and, and it was more specific in that, and I achieved it. I'm, I love the saying, seldom in life do people realize their greatest dreams are the worst fears. Well, yeah, I've almost realized my worst fear. I've certainly realized beyond my greatest dreams. So I didn't have a goal. The second thing was we'd been together as a group 15 years, and I started out at 29. And virtually everyone with me was 15 to 30 years older. And 15 years is a long time to be in a relationship with, with it's a long time to be in a marriage in today's world. Oh, yeah. And we were tired. And so when that ended, we all went our own way. So I lost a group that challenged me, made me a better person, made me a better business person, helped me accountable. So I no longer have a goal. I don't have the people around me. And then now let's pick totally on me. I had had so much success in so many different businesses, in banking, in real estate, in manufacturing. About everything I touched turned to gold. I was very fortunate. Well, you all of a sudden think any decision you make is the right decision. And when nobody's around to bounce it off of, you can really talk yourself into making some stupid decisions. And I literally did exactly that, committed a crime. I knew what I was doing. I was committing a crime. But I justified it like this, Adam. I wasn't stealing money. I wasn't embezzling money. I wasn't doing that. And so one more step in that, in that, from that, you know, what do you call it? Dark gray into the, across the line was, well, I'm not taking money. And this is all going to work out just as I planned and no one will ever know. Well, obviously, uh, what was that movie uh, with, with uh, Danny DeVito? What's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. I, the law of unintended consequences kicked in. And it was just one after another. And so I tell your, your listeners, have a plan and, and, and constantly revise that plan. Surround yourself with people who are going to hold you accountable, who are bright, going to challenge you. 
And don't ever just think you know the answer yourself. And I'm not I'm not a fan of of, of every decision should be made by a committee. Oh and no. And bouncing ideas off of people close to you. I think you get a better result. Yeah, I mean, I see what I like to tell people is I have a uh, I have a council of ministers where people hold various portfolios. And depending on where and when I feel I need a sounding board or I need guidance, I pull them in depending on what the issue is. There are some things, however, I do completely on my own. It's just a matter that uh, it's just a matter that I and I think of this circle being about 20 people. So uh, let's say it's an issue with client acquisition. Uh, I've got people for that. Let's say it's an issue with client retention. I've got people for that. Let's say it's uh, an issue with uh, uh, trying to properly be a worthy servant to my cats. I got people for that. Uh, let's say it's uh, it's about it's an issue about women. I got people for that. Uh, not everybody, however, is called upon to comment on every issue. That's very wise. Yeah, I, and, and you know, I I always said you you need somewhere between six and eighteen, and you threw out twenty, and I think you're spot on. I, I actually have a I actually have a list I keep written down. I don't share it with anybody. It's only for my information. But I actually do have a list of the people that I consider to be within my council of advisors. That's great, and that and you use them just the way you should in certain areas that they have the expertise. Because someone that has an expertise, and as you mentioned, client acquisition is probably not going to be the best social media advisor you could have. Right, that's certainly the fact. And uh, and when you and see what's amazing. I started out in the banking business and, and spent almost 30 years in it. And the government through regulation drives you to set up some really good processes and to do things in a manner that gets you there where most small business people, and in particular, the newly minted entrepreneur, they don't have those rails around them. Yeah. yeah I can tell you from looking at 10,000 business plans and thousands of businesses and billions of dollars of loans, the people who have those get a better result over time. Correct. Uh, I floundered for so many years. I barely scraped by because I didn't have to be accountable to anybody. As long as I somehow managed to pay my bills, uh, that's for, as Larry Wingo would say, I was actually exactly where I wanted to be, even though I hated it. But, uh, but then I started involving others and I created levels of accountability, even though I don't have quote unquote employees in the legal technical sense. Uh, I do have a mastermind I belong to. I do have a business coach and I do have my council of advisors. And the more I involve people, the better I get. Yes. No, and and, and, and then you're also describing today's world. You know, when I hear people get negative, I say, what's great about where we are today is, is that when I got out of college, I was the last generation of, I have two fraternity brothers that I lived with right out of college. Uh -huh. And both now are celebrating their 40th year with their original employee. That is so rare, even in my generation. And so you, more and more people are that, you know, solopreneur, whatever, you, whatever term you want to put on it, where you're by yourself or it's a small business, a very small micro business would be even a better term than, um, than a small one. And you have to have those people around you. You have to have a plan. You have to have all those things and you will get a better result. And that's, I remember 25 years ago when somebody came out and they described a dashboard. You know, you need a dashboard. I'm thinking, why do I need a dashboard? Well, we came up with about six things we thought were important. And guess what? Because we made them important, we got better results in six areas, which all happened to drive our business further.
and that's that's how it works yeah um another thing i've implemented is i have a project management system just for me it doesn't have like uh you know multiple team members and dependencies and all that it is just simply my way of being able to log in from anywhere uh see what i have going on that day the next day what's running behind what's running ahead what are some other things i can pick up off the plate and even some things that don't even have a due date but i they're just all in a bucket of things that are coming up yeah see that, and I think just that little change right there and not using my email as a to-do list and not writing things down uh well i mean they say you know write things down what have you sometimes that's effective but having a simple project management system that i log into myself means i can drag things around without having to write a bunch of stuff on a piece of paper it's faster and more efficient yes it is and um and that's also the use of today's technology and i joke you know for years everybody joked we're in a paperless society you have to use more paper but it was people didn't huh? choose use a paperless society yeah right so, right right and so you back to your you know your original question i i took a perfect perfect business career and ruined it by not doing the things you just covered and that's uh -huh. i couldn't i couldn't have summed up better what you just said in the last few minutes yeah and you know where i learned some of these best practices um from people who are ex-convicts who become successful entrepreneurs I, I believe that there's very there's some very smart people in prison. One of the things I will say, and and I'm I'm not on a social justice mission, is right. Is even though I've been out on three years now, it it's it's actually worse out than it was in the accountability and the things they do. And I, I say in the book, I tried to get a job with the largest hospital chain making beds because the government wants me to have a job that that pays me every week, and it allowed me to do the things I want to do, which are the things you and I are talking about now. And uh, they wouldn't hire me because I was a felon. So then I went to the other largest hospital chain and I disclosed this up front. And I told them I wanted to work in the morgue because I thought maybe a good title for my book would be From the Boardroom to the Morgue. Well, they wanted to hire me and then they said, oh, we can't. And so it's it's hard for people to get out. And so with just what you're saying is a whole lot of them become entrepreneurs because they really can't get a job anywhere else. That's absolutely right. Um, one of my friends who's been on this show several times, his name is Mike Pashoda. He's the author of From Prison to Prosperity. He did a 10-year bid um, as a result of, I don't remember all the details, but when he was a, he was an adolescent, I think it was something like a, a drug-fueled robbery spree or something. Anyway, he caught 10 years off of it. And uh, I seem to recall, he did just about the entire 10. And it was during his time in prison that he found love. Now, don't laugh, because I, I know all the bad jokes about that. He fell in love with the DJ on a radio station that he tuned into, and, uh, and he's now married to her, and they have a wonderful, wonderful family. Now, when I first met these, these two, I met them at an event, and it turned out they had been following me on LinkedIn, but I didn't really know them, but we became friends in an event in 2013. Then I got to hear their story, and they were telling me about how when they first started their business, or they, you know, they first got married and they, you know, their first kid was on the way, they were dumpster diving for things they could clean up, fix up, and sell on Craigslist. And I'm thinking, okay, there's something missing here. I get bootstrapping, but that's kind of an interesting way to start a business. And by interesting, I mean weird. Then I found out the guy did a 10-year bid. It's like, oh, now I get it. Right. 
And now, 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 now I get it. And, I, and I've also heard his story. I mean, he goes into prisons and he he's a motivational speaker. And uh, sometimes he can get in. But I also hear stories about how they resist him going into the prisons. And sometimes uh, when people who are incarcerated order his book, they'll confiscate it. Uh, the answer is it, it doesn't take a ro- doesn't take rocket scientists. He's showing them there's life outside of prison, and they're hoping that they fuck up so that they uh, can get up their recidivism rates. Exactly, it's a it's a lifetime employment plan. Yeah, anything else the government runs. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you read the book, they tell the whole stories about how they uh, he and his wife. Uh, kept losing jobs and uh, the wife kept losing jobs just because she was married to him. I believe that. And, yeah, and, 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 and it wasn't subtle. They weren't, they weren't inventing performance issues that they could, that they could technically get rid of her for. They were coming out and saying, you can't work here because your husband's an ex convict. Hmm. That's terrible. And the funny part of it is, is that in society, so many people are unbelievably forgiving. Once my book came out, I've gotten hundreds of emails from people that, you know, I haven't talked to in years and many of them never knew I'd gone through what I'd gone through, but it's been so, it's just been really refreshing that the world's that way. And I haven't gotten any of that. And by the way, the list wasn't called out for people I thought might be mad at me or something. Yeah. But it tells you that, you know, we as humans are forgiving. And a lot of it is if you come out and tell the truth, um, you know, people, people want to want to go forward and um, yeah. It's a lot of that. I've got a, I've got a good friend, uh, uh, you know, guy I see all the time, and uh, he did. Uh, I think it was seven years behind being involved in a cocaine distribution ring. He's in real estate now, and uh, and uh, you know, nicest guy uh, you'll ever meet. Uh, generous, helpful, one hundred percent legit, and uh, you know, I mean, educated, erudite, uh, and people love the guy. And part of it is because. He's just so authentic about his journey. Yes. What you learn in life is, is that honesty and transparency are really so important. Those are the keys to real success. Well, there's something about America. You know, you know, what Americans love even more than bad food. A good comeback story. Yeah, that my I have two nephews. One's a very successful golfer. And the other one um, runs a started, founded a big company and done unbelievably well and the week before i was sentenced i got a letter from him he didn't know you know my sense he kept getting moved but it said uncle sean everybody loves the horatio alger story you had but they love to watch you fall but they really love the comeback and yeah. uh, that is so true and that's why it's been fun and people have been so helpful you know again the institutions are not helpful but the people are you know when you get down to the people at the core they want to see you come back because a whole lot of people, and I've heard this from, from dozens of people, they say most people who've been through what you've been through just want to crawl in a hole and give up. And they go, we love somebody who's resilient. And that's resilient. is, is And I know many of your listeners who are in business with themselves, you have to be resilient with a crime. If you don't get up every day and expect to get pounded and then, you know, you're going to quit, then you're not going to make it. You're going to get pounded every day and you can't quit. I intentionally put myself in situations sometimes where I know I'm going to get criticized because I just need to practice. Yes. No, I, when I yeah. was a young, young banker, whenever I would close a big deal, the next week I would go out to an industrial park and take a second annual reports and go door to door just to remember what it was like 
so that I could ground myself better. So very similar to what you just said. Yeah. Those are good traits. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, in, in the end, it puts you, you know, it, it does help you to build some of that resiliency. Uh, you know, I, uh, I uh, got into, uh, let's just say I somehow managed to run afoul of some political extremists on a social media platform a few weeks ago. They were saying completely, I mean, just nasty stuff about me and uh, just completely unfounded because that's just how they act. I mean, that's their idea of life is to hide behind a keyboard and and bully and threaten, try to destroy people just because of a difference of opinion. And I'm looking at like... <laughs> laughing at it and i mean i i mean i looked at these really nasty things i was saying and i was like dude can you at least be original <laughs> <laughs> yeah and 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 you got to have that mindset about a lot of things uh the moment people see you make moves they're going to try and stop you Th think think about what makes a dog bark when a car drives by right some activity yeah uh does the car stop just because the dog's barking no precisely dog keeps barking though carl just keep driving and eventually whoa, 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 just fades away in the background yeah. and then and then the dog will bark at the next car and the next and so on and so on and so on and i love and i love dogs dogs are awesome but in the end what the dog wants is uh is to be fed right no yeah they're they're looking forward to their bowl of food yeah, I did. and yeah, i'm glad to hear that you didn't uh capitulate to bullying because that's one of the things in our society that's just gotten way out of control well i grew up with a lot of it uh on the receiving end and i you know and the, um, the only regret i have and i I'll, I'll i'll say this uh i'll just come out and say it my my very few regrets are the couple of times i didn't just punch somebody in the face yeah uh, and, oh. and, and the reason i say that is not out of anger or vengeance or anything uh, part of the reason I put up with it is because I was afraid of getting hurt physically. But then I got in a couple of fights and I found out that, you know, it's really not that bad. No, you're right. And it's in, in, in the result, usually the bully one punch later is done. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, or, or what uh, has happened, you know, a couple of times as an adult where I've uh, you know, stood up to bullying is, uh, They'll say, oh, man, uh, I'm going to let you go. But next time, I'm going to kick your ass as they're walking backwards away from you. It's like, very keep talking, but just keep walking at the same time. It's all good. Whatever you got to say to save face, as long as you keep walking away. Yeah, no, you're right, Adam. That's a, that is a very true statement. And, and, we've, and, and unfortunately, we've all experienced that. The good news is, is that, you, you know, you, you're the kind of person that moves on in life and goes upward where so many people, it, it changes their course. Yeah. So you have a book uh, that I'm looking forward to reading called The Gray Choice. And part of what we're talking about here today is staying the course through life's ethical gray areas. You know, they say that uh, they say that life is supposed to be a strict right or wrong thing, and you got to know which is which. But, you know, we're finding out that there's gray areas. What's up with that? Well, you know, and, and, and I looked at it this way. I would grays where the margin in the margin where the money is yeah but you can't you know you can't cross the line but when i first started out and i always had really good attorneys and i would go to them and, and doing something illegal wasn't an option but what yeah. was an option was don't ever tell me i can't do something adam tell me how i can do what i want to do and then i will decide if it's worth the aggravation 
Right. The I would give is you're, you know, you're south and west of me. So the logical thing would be is I drive out to the airport and get on a plane and be there in a few hours. Yeah. But that would the attorneys would say that is an option. But you can, Sean, take a plane to Dallas and rent a car and get the, you know, get to Santa Fe. And then from there, you can take a Greyhound bus. And it's going to take you two weeks and it's going to cost you $10,000. And I may say the time and the aggravation, the money aren't worth it. But then they may be. And so that was the mindset I had in, in, the, in the context of don't do something illegal and get into that gray and make the money. We made an ordinary amount, an extraordinary amount of money for a bank in a niche of financing foreclosure, short sales, things like that. We had a real niche in that, about a $100 million business for us that we made millions of dollars a year. But the government had come out, had come out with a law in the early 90s because they didn't want banks to lend 100% on things, on real estate in particular. And we built an argument with good counsel that our borrowers did one of two things because we didn't lose a dime in that business over 15 years. But what we learned was they either sold the property, obviously, for more than they paid for it. But more than two thirds of the time, they refinanced with one of our competitors and got somewhere between 25 and 50 percent more money. And so we proved to the government that, yes, we're lending 100 percent, but the next guy's let in 125 or 150% of what we did. So we really weren't lending 100% of the value. We were lending 100% of the cost at a point in time. And so that kind of thinking warped me on one side, but made me a lot of money on the other. And being able to think that you can do that time and time again, and then we go back to your original question, at some point, I just didn't have the rails around me. And I, I, I'll say that 100 times, did it to myself. Yeah. I never, I never ever put blame on anybody but myself. But what happens is we all have a moral compass. But when you're when you're in the gray, sometimes you lose a little bit of sight. It's like flying a plane and not using the instruments. You can get in a lot of trouble in a hurry. I think a lot of uh, this goes back to something we hear during our childhood, and I want to tell you if. Uh, and I want to run a scenario by you, and I want you to just tell me if it sounds familiar to you or maybe even to somebody you know. Uh, you're a kid, you make some mistake or something, and you get taken through this, this in, interrogatory where you have to confess your sins. And then what do they have you repeat back to them at the end? You say, okay, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry, Sean. I'm sorry. And I'll never do it again. And I'll never do it again. Really? See, I do. Are, are, are you sorry? Will you never do it again? Right. It's a it's a consequence. The consequence stiff enough that you won't. And the answer is ninety nine point nine percent of the time, no. Right. Until until you screwed up at the level I did. But yeah, that's and that, and and we build those mechanisms into our thought process, and then. The thing I didn't cover in the beginning because I didn't think it was ready, we were ready for that is most decisions in business are based, based upon fear and greed. Yeah. And so what had happened to me was I had always had an element of too much greed. I'll admit that. But I had lost so much money in 2008 and I committed the crime at the end of August of 2009 and in 2009 that I was in fear. And motivated by greed and being terribly fearful of where things were headed, I just took one more step. And uh, 
there's a book that an attorney wrote that um, several years ago said that most business people commit up to three felonies a day and meaning unintentionally, obviously yeah. mine is intentional, but anytime you're in a business that has any kind of complexity to it, and then you lose your moral compass as I did, you can get in a whole lot of trouble in a hurry. And I you did. can you can get in a whole lot of trouble by accident by trying to do the right thing. Yes, you can. It was, yeah, it no. was so but with so many laws out there that uh, folks don't even know necessarily on the board. Uh, that's and that also holds some people back because they're afraid that if they that if they run afoul of the wrong person or the wrong entity or something like that, that they'll find something to get them on. Right, and and we're 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 reading a lot. And we we both know human beings are can do some horrible things. And over the last, especially over the last 20 years, we've seen so much come out from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s where that exactly happened to people. And so you yeah. and I know, and then it happens every day. Right. People use, use power and position to do horrible things to people. I have to tell you something that I didn't know, and I was actually socializing with a criminal lawyer of, of mm -hmm. about a year ago. And, he's, and we were talking about how many laws there were. You know, when the Constitution was originally written, there was treason counterfeiting and murder those were that's about it yeah now there's about forty thousand. yeah that's two the other one is he said sean do you know this is this is a federal offense and i said no he said if you own a gun and say you have a three-story house and you're on the third floor and it's in the basement or vice versa and you're smoking pot that is a felony because you have an illegal drug and a firearm uh -huh. and so you can get, like you said, you can get in a lot of trouble in a hurry. I unfortunately got in a lot of trouble in a hurry and knew what I was doing. Yeah. And that's what I really want your listeners to glean from this. It just, it was a shortcut I didn't need to take. I should have admitted I was going to fail at that point. And failure to me at that time, well, I, after I, and I thought I'd failed. Well, then I really failed when I committed a crime. And what I learned is this failures, you know, it's not final. It's an event and, um, and you can overcome it. And I knew that then I just couldn't grasp the concept of admitting it. Where now um, I, you know, I, I wear it every day. I have a scarlet letter, but uh, it's okay. I'm not afraid to fail anymore. Yeah. So, uh, so have you ever seen that movie Wall Street? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, what, what was that? What was that thing that uh, that the Michael Douglas character said at the shareholders meeting? What was that phrase? Well, I mean, I, the line I always remember is greed is good, but... Uh, uh, yeah, well, greed is good. He never said that. I thought he said greed was good. <laughs> no, 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 no. They, they, a lot of people believe that's what he said, but he did not say greed is good. Okay, now I'm going to have to watch the movie again because I love that movie. Yeah, that's... Uh, there, there was a bit of creative editing in some of the promotional clips that led people to believe that he said greed is good, but that is not what he said. Okay, well, 30 some years later now, then I know what I'm going to watch this weekend. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what he said is that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Yeah. There's a key difference here. So we've been taught that greed is evil greed is bad greed hurts people i mean in elementary school uh you know that kid that brought a candy bar and the teacher caught him and he made the kid bring a big bag of candy the next day so if you're going to bring it for yourself bring it for everybody so it teaches you not to be greedy 
but however, if you add the modifier for lack of a better word, what is it? We're not saying greed is good. We're saying it's something. Yeah. So I, I love to, I love to, when I speak on stages myself, I love to read the transcript of that segment uh, from that scene. What Gordon Gecko, the character, actually said is the point is, ladies and gentlemen, the greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Yeah. And, That's and the actual like, message. And, 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 that, and there's nothing truer. And that, you know, from having been in the banking business in the day, the beginning of the LBO, um, and I don't know if you, did you read Barbarians at the Gate? I, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard of it. Okay, well, the, the writer and I went to college together, but it was it was absolute greed in its worst case until they came along and 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 did a Gordon Gecko and, and and took it over. But the point is, is that that made companies leaner and better, and it was better yeah. for the employees at the end of the day. But we we have a problem in society of dealing with transitions like that because it because there's a human cost that is uh, is 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 really terrible. But that's what happens in, in business. It's, as you said, the right word is evolution. It's no different than it was thousands of years ago. People right. Get hurt. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, conundrum, so to speak. Oh, yeah, very, very much so. The context of that scene from the movie was the shareholders meeting at Teldar Paper, which, uh, which Gecko was uh, in the process of launching a hostile takeover of. And he was pointing out how many vice presidents there were, and yet they weren't making any money. Right. And then, right. And, then, and, then, and then there's a blink if you miss it, quote, later in the movie. And, uh, and I, I, in, in, if you watch the movie again, watch for him being on an airplane with Bud Fox, the Charlie Sheen character, a little bit later on. And he'll say something like, damn it, we fired two thirds of those vice presidents and they're still not turning a buck. Okay. I will, I'll look for that line. But, you know, that's in, 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 the, in the Barbarians at the Gate, he talks about how many. You know, they had an Air Force. They had so many planes. And and that was what's interesting is I never, and we were a public company, um, and I was the third largest shareholder and the CEO. Do you know I never bought a first-class ticket for business travel? Okay. I wouldn't do that, you know? And I just, it was one of those things where I, and I say this in the book, but it was so true. I bought three public companies um, in a, in a, in a, in a four-year span and we had to bribe the CEO legally every time to get him bought because one company I didn't get to buy, the CEO looked at me at the end and he said, Sean, a third of my shareholders love me, a third hate me, and a third don't care. And until the third that don't care hate me, it's the best job I've ever had. And that's what's wrong with corporate America. It's not about the shareholder. You know, it's about the management in so many cases. And that's why you see the, you know, the real life, the, the, the hedge funds come in now and take positions and do things and cause management to make those tough decisions that they really don't want to make because right. they like being at the, at the trough. And, uh, and that's not, you know, I, I'm a finance major and in the first corporate finance book I picked up in the first page, literally, I think it was the first sentence. The goal of the corporation is to maximize shareholder value. And uh, now when it's your own business and I, and I, I say this in a video that I have out there, you know, one, you should do what you love. 
but if you love what you're doing, it isn't about making money all the time. It's do you want time off? Do you want to travel? You mentioned, I love what you said earlier. I am a minimalist because I like experiences. You can do that because you're only accountable to yourself. Right. And by the way, that's you live your life anyway, but that's a different story. But from a business standpoint, when you own it all, you can do that. When you have, you know, one shareholder or millions of shareholders, you have a different accountability. And, uh, and that always bothered me because we were, when it came time to sell, it was not one iota about me. It was about a shareholder. And I was one of the thousands because I wanted the best for my shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. I cer- certainly, you know, I, um, when I was in MBA school, one of, I was uh, one of the classes I took uh, and the professor asked one day, what is the purpose of a business? And I rose my, raised my hand. He called on me. Said the purpose, I said, the purpose of a business is to make money. Now, he then went on and I had a good relationship with the guy, but he kind of went a little bit overboard. And he went on to say that was probably the dumbest thing he ever heard. And he looked forward to getting together with his buddies so that he could repeat the story and they could all laugh at me over it. Because the idea that the purpose of a business is to make money is like saying that the purpose of uh, living is to breathe. And I challenged that because if you don't breathe, you're not going to live very long. No, I agree completely. If a business doesn't make money, it's not going to survive for very long. If that business is not making money, it cannot pay people well. And if it doesn't pay people well, they're not going to do their best work for the company because economic uncertainty and instability are going to mentally hinder them from giving you their best effort. And it's going to breed resentment. And you're going to turnover. Yeah, we, we, in the late 90s and in early 2000s, every company got a mission statement. And, um, and of course, like every other company, we paid a consultant to come in and spend a day with our board. And, and we came out with that we wanted to benefit our shareholders, our employees, our associates, the word we use, our communities, um, you know, and, and, you know, the thing that you, everybody wanted to hear. But as soon as that guy left or gal, whatever it was, whoever she was or him, we said, it's about making money. Because if we're not making money, we're not going to help our customers. We're not going to help our associates and we're not going to help our communities and we're sure not helping our shareholders but we as society get off on these tangents of you know you've got to touch every base and that's not what it's about you want to do the right thing you want to be a good citizen you want to help others you want to help the people who work for you and the people who do business for you but if you're not in business you can't do that well correct correct i mean and i'm i'm familiar with the mission statements i've been involved with startups where they would have meetings about the meetings about the meetings where they would craft the mission, vision, and values. And there was a lot of wordsmithing and 20-minute conversations over which uh, conjugation or which verb to use to convey which level of power, whether you use active or passive tense, and uh, blah, 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 blah. You know what these ended up being? They ended up being uh, blurbs on a minor page on the website. Right. Because the actual because because once you got past all that shit, the actual talk was about how we make some money with this thing. Exactly. Because uh, and, and even if and even if it turned into we're here because we want to get involved in such and such a charity because we believe in this, it's like, all right, we got to come up with money if we want to help this charity. Right. No, you 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 hit the nail on the head. And and that's why I, I, I go back to honesty and transparency. If you're honest about it, 
we're here to make money. We're here to serve our customers because we don't serve our customers. We're not going to make money. Right. If we don't touch on employees, if you're not doing the right thing for them, they're going to leave. And if you do those things, then it all works. But yeah, it starts with making money. And, uh, and that's, and it's not a dirty word, but, um, but it gets painted in that corner and more yeah. often. Yeah. Well, Sean, I remember when I was in the fifth grade. Maybe it was a third grade. Oh, God, I can't remember. I told this story so many times, but that doesn't affect it. We were given uh, an in-class essay assignment. So teacher asked a question, and we wrote the answers in class. Question was, phrased as follows. If you won a million dollars in the lottery, what would you do with it? Now, those of us who did our essay assignments found out very quickly that the only correct answer to that, once everybody handed theirs in and got their grades back, what have you, the only correct answer was to make a list with dollar amounts of everybody you would give the money to, and you had to give away the entire million dollars. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so let's start with how the question was phrased, and then let's look at that result (laughs) and what it does to motivation. So first of all, there's the question. If you won a million dollars in the lottery, what would you do with it? Okay. So win a million dollars. What about being really successful with a business and making a million dollars in business? What if you're what if you're a really good athlete and you get a million dollar contract to go pro? What if you turn out to be one hell of a great actor and you get paid a million dollars for starring in a movie? These these aren't ways to make a million dollars. Oh, 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 no, 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 no. That's for some people. But for you, you're not supposed to have money. The only way you get money is by blind luck. If you pay a dollar at the convenience store and you scratch something off and all the numbers align, and then you got to get rid of it. So what does that do to people psychologically and their relationship with money? as adults it really messes you up and uh, it's a terrible example to say you want kids to think they can be successful and be motivated yeah correct correct uh now of course when you're at that grade level they don't get into the part where after taxes it's more like six hundred and forty thousand or something like that but uh so uncle sam wasn't one of the lines that you gave the money to so technically you're supposed to go several hundred thousand dollars into debt besides to make sure you give away a million. Exactly. Yeah, because you still got to pay those taxes, but that wasn't mentioned. No, it's but a- yeah, but yeah, but yeah, you're uh yeah, you want to get into that business. Uh you have you know, your your new favorite charity is gonna be the Internal Revenue Service. That's right. No, it's um and then they and they and actually you live in a state where you didn't in a lot of states it's it's you're gonna get uh, a little less than six hundred. You know, it depends uh-huh. on the neighbor. In your neighbor, it might be closer to 500, the one to the West. Oh, in California? Yeah. yeah. I was explaining this to somebody a few weeks ago, and they didn't realize this. I said, when I when I was um, went to first went to college as an undergraduate, uh, the marginal tax rate was 70% at the federal level yeah. for over a, quarter, over a quarter million dollars. Right. Yeah, probably, you know, two million a day, but still it was very, very um, uh, progressive. And uh, people don't realize, and then you wonder why some of the brightest people I knew quit working, um, you know, at young ages that had made money 
and literally laid on the sidelines until after the um, 81 tax reform um, hit, where now then the marginal rate was down to 50. Because they said, why am I working when I'm paying in a state like California, when I'm paying over 80% of my income to the government? Well, now we're talking, you mentioned 1981 in California. Now we're talking about Ronald Reagan, their former governor. And yeah. uh, and part of the reason that he eased off on his acting career, and he was he was interviewed on this, and there's a tape of him saying this, is because of that same progressive tax, once he got to a certain income to a certain amount of income, he knew that if he worked another day that year, he was actually going to lose a lot more money than he had earned up until that point. So at the beginning of the year, he would start doing acting roles. Once he had a certain number, he spent the rest of the year playing golf. Actually, the, the Wall Street Journal, I've been reading it for over 40 years, and every year they have a graph that I love. And it's it's uh, the marginal tax rate, and then it's what the wealthiest you know, one or 2% pay. And no matter what the tax rate is, they pay about the same level of income because you, you remember a gentleman named Ross Perot, yep. what he said, 4 billion in municipal bonds. And what people don't realize is you lose so much productivity and capital because people make the decision just like you made. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do this because the tax rate's so high. And actually, you know, the lower the tax rate, the higher the revenue. That's but, that's correct. I mean, you know, we hear all this talk about let's soak the rich, let's have billionaire taxes, minimum fifteen percent, and you know how some of that worked. Uh, I mean, you know a lot more about this than I do. Uh, this is your profession. This is just something that I've studied a bit. Is I, you know, I'm actually not opposed to high taxes on high incomes. I'm not opposed to that, or corporate taxes or anything. But here's here's what I would do want to see when that happens is that there are opportunities to engage in tax avoidance when you show reinvestment. And the reason right. for that is reinvestment means you're buying stuff and hiring people. So when you hire people, you create more taxpayers. When you buy stuff, somebody has to build that, which means people who work, who now have jobs, who have more opportunities, who become taxpayers. So the government still gets theirs. It's just not directly from the billionaire. Exactly. No, you 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 you, you stated my philosophy almost perfectly. We're we're yeah. completely there because it's it just history proves that. And uh, it it it's not. I've never had a problem paying taxes. But what 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 you do is when you do make it so complicated that people spend more time trying to figure out a way to avoid them than to pay them. You're not you're not doing exactly what you said. You're not hiring people you're not doing you're not producing goods and services that employ yeah. more that's the ultimate goal of government yeah you, yeah so you make it straightforward you create uh, simple reinvestment tables reinvest this much get this break right straightforward right. yeah that's a that's a, a 179 election that employs a lot of people by the yeah. way we, we as a banker you would see this in december you would get so many loan requests from people buying mm -hmm. trucks machinery equipment things like that uh -huh. because what they can write off. <laughs> well, you know, well, you know, the thing is, is um, I've seen, I've watched a lot of people in the entrepreneurial space go from nothing to be something. And I knew that they had actually arrived somewhere when they bought themselves a Mercedes for Christmas. Yeah. Right. And, and the reason they bought it for Christmas, because that was December and they had cash they needed to offload. Otherwise they had a big bill coming up. So that money 
now goes to the company that manufactures the Mercedes. It's going to go to the ancillary service industries that support that manufacturing plant. It's going to go to management salaries, which will be taxed. It's going to create economic opportunities, and that car is going to need service, not to mention there are going to be license and registration fees, which is more money that goes to the people. Right. No, it's, it, again, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And, and it, with the right kind of, and really, you described the 179 election in the tax code, which incentivized people to do things like that so that more people get employed, more people then pay taxes at a different level, but still the money gets to where the government should want it in their coffers. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a, you, you know, the, the older you get, the more you realize simple would be better, but simple doesn't exist with politicians and attorneys. Well, how many, how many times uh, have you, have you heard uh, these, uh, these people? I'm going to, now I'm not making a political statement either way, but I'm just going to quote what Donald Trump said during the, uh, during the primary debates uh, for the 2016 election cycle. And he said, and they were bringing up the issue of uh, him taking tax breaks and tax write-offs and all that. And he pointed out that, yeah, you damn right I took the breaks. You damn right I took the loopholes. Uh, you people who've been in government for 40 years, if you had a problem with it, you would have gotten rid of them by now. That's true. They perpetuated it. Well, it's, a, it's a business in itself. Right, 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 right. Because the people who make the laws also benefit from them. So they don't have an incentive to close the loopholes because they're using them. In fact, many of those loopholes were created by them for them. Right. No, it's a, you know, it's, it's, well, I, we're not on politics here. We're on economics. Right. And it's amazing what politicians do. And it doesn't matter the party. It's, it's both sides or whatever side you want to pick. Yeah. They do things that are motivated either in their own personal self-interest in, in a direct way or an indirect way where their largest donors want it. And they will, they will write the law just to craft it to where it benefits the people who give them the most money so they can win re-elections by perpetuating their career. Well, yeah, you got the lobbyists writing the laws. What do you expect? Right. Well, yeah. the other, a few years ago, there was a law that I was reading, I was interested in. It was 900 and some pages in, in some commentator. And I, it doesn't matter. The channel said, how many congressmen and women and how many senators actually read that? And the, and the, and the person interviewed and said, we assume none. At best, somebody on their staff did. At best. Yet, you know, they all voted. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, again, now we're just talking about impacts on the economics. Uh, you know, I mean, think about how long it's been since the United States has had a proper constitutional operating budget. Um, been a long time we have these continuing spending resolutions where they drag it out until the last second it's like three thousand pages long uh they give the members of congress three hours to decide how they're voting on it and then they do the vote the morning of the day the president has to sign it before the previous resolution runs out and they and they walk up to the president, they slam it on his or, or her desk. I'm, we're going to have a female president. I know it. Uh, so they slam it on the president's desk and they say, will you sign this or will you shut the country down? That's exactly right. Yeah. So so it actually becomes extortion. And and yet we call that government. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes we actually think it's good government, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, I know we went down this. The segue, but I mean, we want to talk about gray areas. 
no, it's the, the government is the grayest. Yeah. Yet, yet they, they, they're the ones that delineate what is black and white for the rest of us. But no, in, in, you know, back to what's gray and what isn't, is that you really, and, and, and I like what you said about the 20 people around you. If you don't have those kind of people around you, one, you, you're in the gray, no matter what you think there's gray everywhere, but it's making sure you're using those people, making sure you know, what's important to you. And, and I don't, you know, and that means just the, the, the great line of, I want to do the right thing because sometimes the right thing may not be the real right thing, but you know, it's, we also, we like saying those little, you know, those little quotes that make us feel good. But um, I would, I would just implore your listeners to constantly check where they are and what they're doing and make sure that they're on the side of the line they think they're on because it goes in a hurry. Well, you know, uh, and sometimes we find good values in conflict with each other. Um, I remember watching a TV show. Uh, what was it? Oh, the Commish. Yeah, it was the Commish. Uh, this is in the 1990s, and uh, the main character's son. Uh, there, there had been a there had been a school shooting, and the main character's son was friends with the guy with the kid who did the shooting, or somehow came in possession of the gun. I can't remember all the details. And the main character's son withheld this information from his dad, who was the commissioner of police. And uh, and it led to this whole big thing that could have been solved much sooner. And I remember the dad being really, really, really mad at his son. And uh, and, and the mother had to explain to him that, look, uh, you, you, ra- you raised your son with values uh, to try and do the right thing. And also to not be a rat. So now your son is finding himself conflicted with two values, and he's not sure what to do. That's, and that's true. It's, I always said loyalty is one of my greatest attributes and one of my worst faults. Yeah. Usually your, you know, your strengths are also equally have a weakness attached to them. And, and that's right. You raise your son just like that. I can see that very, very analogy. Yeah. Um, not life or death situation but in a similar one yeah, right so right right loyalty to your friends and and keeping confidences but then is that always the right thing to do it's it's really challenging and then and then you have to figure the the son might have promised his friend to keep the secret but was keeping the secret the best thing right and that's and a tough one and the judgment thing is if even if he knew was it was the friend going to carry it out you know there's so many there's so many variables. It, 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 it's a, as we all know, life is not just a simple black and white page. Can yeah. I tell you there's my favorite story from the book? Oh, please do. Please do it. Cause I was, I was about, yeah. Cause we're with just a few minutes here and uh, there was uh, one question I was going to ask you. Uh, let me just ask the question. Maybe it figures into your answer. Um, looking back at your entire trajectory and I'm looking forward to reading your books. So I can get the whole story. Uh, what would you have done differently? I so I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask that question. Let you tell the story, and if you're able to answer the question, go right ahead. I'll answer the question first. Adam, I wouldn't do one thing different, and here's why. I took one engineering class in college, and it was on manufacturing. And you know, they, they had decision trees. If you make one decision, then you change every decision. Yeah. And 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 then you know, I wouldn't have led the life I led. Uh, do I wish I had the failures? No. In particular, I, I wish I hadn't hurt my children the way I did. But if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be where I am now. 
where I'm able to help people because I tell people I have a unique story. Very few people that I, I met a lot of people in prison who are on a show called American Greed, which I've never seen, where they were truly people who, in many cases, were talking billions of dollars, but they were running a criminal activity from day one. I had a 30 year unblemished, unbelievable, successful career. And then I really screwed up. Yeah. I have that story had I not done what I did. So no, that that's an easy one. But let me tell you this story because I think it applies to something you and I've talked about. And I know your listeners do. I, I titled this story, not in the book, but I call it, it's about culture. Because I think what's so important to a business is the culture you create. And I call my, and I call this culture, cash, and crazy. Culture, buy, cash, and crazy. Okay. Right. And here's what happens. We buy this bank and we get there and, and your listeners are going to say, well, of course they had money in the bank. They had a million one hundred thousand dollars of cash in the bank. Now, 10 years later, I had 38 offices like that. And the most we had was 50 in cash. And we had more than that in the ATM. But at that time, we bought this bank and it had a million one in cash. And my partner and interest rates were high. And the Fed funds rate, what the government will pay you overnight was nine percent. But if it's in your vault, you don't get paid anything. Now, they do count it towards your reserve requirements. That's a good thing. But he said, you know, Sean, we could take, if we took three quarters of a million, because we had no idea how much we needed. We didn't need the, the, the 350 we left there. But we, we said, let's stay with 350. If we take the three quarters of a million dollars, we'll make an extra $5,000 a month in change. Actually, we're all, you know, almost 6,000 a month. And uh, I said, okay, I'll call Brinks. So I picked up the phone a few minutes later and called Brinks. And they said, yes, we can come a week from Thursday and it's going to cost you $250. And I walked back to his office and I said, I told him, I said, we're not going to spend $250. This is back to culture. We want a culture of not having too many vice presidents, of not having too many planes. So he said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to load it in my trunk, Adam. We loaded okay. three quarters of a million dollars in the back end of a Buick. Now, literally, I think the bumper could have, could have you know, hit the bottom of the pavement by that point. It's not like in the movie where they're doing a drug deal. It was tons of money because it's fives, tens, fifties, twenties, hundreds to get there. And we fill my trunk up. And by the way, I haven't mentioned, I've neglected the fact the bank's 168 miles from my home in St. Louis. This is getting so, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so now then I've got three quarters of a million dollars. It's uninsured in the trunk of a car and I've got to drive 168 miles. So my partner followed me, and this is a story, truthfully, I don't think other than the employees who worked for us at the time that I told anyone until I wrote the book, and my, my nephew that I'm closest to said, Uncle Sean, you are crazy, and I have one cousin that's on my mother's side, and this is very important when he says this, because I don't know why he didn't do this. He said, why didn't you sleep in the car? I drive the 168 miles, get home, we unload the three quarters of a million dollars into the family room. Then we put blankets over it, and then everybody slept in there because what if the house burned down? So the next morning at about four in the morning, we get up, load the three-quarters million dollars back in the trunk. We go downtown on 4th Street where the Fed is, and you know at five-something morning, we line up with a whole lot of Brinks trucks and one Buick over $250. So that's definitely crazy. It is about cash, but it told you a lot about the culture we had. Wow. Yeah. So... All that just to save on a delivery fee, basically, is what I'm getting. Exactly. We did get the money in the bank. So we probably made an extra $1,000, you know, a week sooner, 10 days sooner. But no, it was really about $250. But I, 
I did a lot of things over those 15 years where one time I, we bought a bank and I, pull, I parked by the dumpster in the back of the building because I felt like people should come in the front. And I saw this paper from the bank. It had their logo on it. And I literally got in the dumpster with 20 smokers standing outside who then decided to help. And we, we took that and cut it up and used it. I'm like, we're not throwing this good paper away. It's not ours, but we'll figure out a way. It was a culture of being a good steward of what assets you had. And that's an important thing. I know you know that because you're in business for yourself. But that's something when you have more than just yourself or more than a handful of people, you want a culture that tells people that. Yeah. And again, I mean, uh, if we want to use the phrase living your values, you did that pretty literally. So your value was, uh, as I'm picking up, one of the important ones is uh, save money where you can. Right. Yeah. We did, we, I learned in, in school, the low cost provider wins. So try to be as low cost as you can where you should be. And right. if, I tell the story, and this is true, too, because. I knew, I learned very early on, I was not my own customer. Our customers didn't care what our offers, offices looked like. And we sold out to the ninth largest bank in the country, a Fortune 200. And um, at the end, I, you, know, you keep waiting for them to cut the price or to do something. And at the end, they said, we just have one complaint. And I thought, well, here it comes. And they said, your offices need a little sprucing up. Well, quite honestly, if it would just been my bank, it would look like Northern Trust in Chicago. You know, just an unbelievable institution. Forget we didn't have the money to do that, but our customers didn't care what it looked like. They wanted good service and they wanted the right pricing. And that's what I always tell business people. You're not your own customer. What's important to your customer? And don't worry about your competition. They're always going to be there and they're always going to be doing things that you don't think are logical. Worry uh -huh. about the Focus on the customer. Yep. Well, and I'll just uh, and I'll just wrap up before we finish the episode here. Uh, you know, for a couple of years, my primary business has been working with businesses to, and entrepreneurs to launch their podcasts, and uh, we have the uh, we have an entire curriculum called the Podcast Reach System. Oh, it's so detailed; it gets into all levels of branding, business strategy, uh, all sorts of stuff. So, with some of our pilot clients, we would give them homework exercises. And uh, they would figure out things like their title, tagline, description, uh, content for the sites and things like that. Uh, then they would do other steps and I would guide them through and all that while my team did our part of it. And what I ultimately discovered was that some of the stuff that was in that system didn't matter to our customers at all. But there were other things I hadn't even thought of that mattered to them greatly. And so I have a I have a client right now where uh, they're investing in the system and we're building this out for them, but they don't want to use it as a podcast per se. So what I figured out is how to take the model and apply it to what they actually want to do. And uh, but they still get and I'll, and I'll finish this in one second is um, they still get all the mechanisms for a podcast. And what I said to them is real simple. It's like. This is part of our process. You paid for it. So uh, we'll just put it up and then deactivate the pages. If you ever decide you want to podcast, just turn these pages on and come back to us and do the syndication. It takes us an hour. Uh, so um, so they get it regardless. Now, the ultimate thing here is I figured out that they actually wanted us to do more of the stuff for them. And they cared less about these really fine points than I thought they'd care about than the fact that it was done by somebody they could trust. Right. That's and once I, a, once I discovered that, we were actually able to 
take away services, lower the price, increase our volume, and increase our profits. Isn't that wonderful? But trust is a great word. You hit the nail on the head. When people trust you, you you got a relationship that you can build on and, and do wonderful things. Yeah. All right. So for our listeners, visit Sean's website. It's W. It's a, it won't. There's no WW. It's a SeanHayes.com. It's spelled S-H-A-U-N-H-A-Y-E-S. And you'll discover a lot of things. Uh, you'll see his blog. I'm going to spend some time going through that. You'll learn more about Sean as a man. There are a couple of great videos. And you'll see where you can buy his book called The Gray Choice. It's available on retailers like Amazon. Go to the website and you'll see where to find it. So again, that's SeanHayes.com. And with that, Sean Hayes, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you, Adam. It was a pleasure. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.